Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Although tonight's show is pre-recorded, it will still be filled with the same usual stupid comments and mistakes by our host. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine, on a lovely October evening. Yeah, it's uh, Sunday night as we pre-record this because I'm on the road this week and uh, you know what, just didn't want to do the show from a hotel room. So here we go, Sunday evening and uh, you're listening to it on Tuesday. On tonight's show in Pipe Parts, we're going to talk about packing other uh, other cuts of tobaccos. I think uh, we got... Uh, a, I got an email from a from a listener, and uh, he was asking about packing techniques of a couple of different styles of tobaccos, and I thought we'd covered it before, but we'll uh, we'll cover it again in pipe parts. And then my guest tonight is uh, the legendary pipe maker Mark Tinsky. Sat down with Mark over the weekend. Music, mailbag, and rant—all that coming up in uh, tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine Radio Show. Uh, so as I sit here on Sunday evening, it's been quite an eventful uh, couple of days around here, uh, where I live, just on the edge of the hurricane. Got a couple of days of rain, but nothing, nothing bad. Uh, my son, on the other hand, as well as uh, a lot of folks that I know in the uh, in the Wilmington, North Carolina area, and along the South Carolina coast, down through Georgia and Florida, impacted, and uh, it looks like. They're gonna, you know, gonna scrape by with the worst of it, uh, avoiding everybody that I knew. Hope all of you are well and safe. Hope your pipes are fine. Um, the only big inconvenience here is that it was race weekend here in Charlotte, and uh, the races were all on Sunday, so I got to go over there and sit out in the sunshine and uh, watch a one and a half very long races. Anyway, uh, not bad, not bad at all. But hope everybody's doing fine. Hope you all are enjoying the fall weather now that the hurricane has passed through here on the East Coast. And hope you all enjoy this show. So, everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in and thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. Here we go. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today.
Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right, so here's how the discussion went. Uh, we've talked about different ways of packing flake tobaccos or uh, discs or cutting, uh, you know, cutting rope tobaccos. But what do we have to do differently to other kinds of tobaccos? Uh, in particular, like a ribbon cut or there's a, another cut that I call a cross cut. Uh, there's a shag, and then, of course, there's cube cut. Uh, the, so let's back up a little bit. The reason why there are different cuts of tobaccos is because, uh, first of all, it's more expensive to, um, to do a ribbon cut because you need better, longer pieces of leaf, or uh, the, the blender wanted some of those very long, very nice pieces in there, um, sometimes the, uh, leaves in the blends just won't work. So you gotta, you know, if you're using a heavily oriental blend, you're going to get a smaller leaf. So it, it has to do with the, uh, with the cost of the leaf. And then it has to do with what leaf is being used. And then of course it has to do with the smoking experience. All right. So ruling out all the flake tobaccos, a ribbon cut is a, uh, is a blend that is already rubbed out completely loose and you'll see long cut pieces in it it's the most traditional type of loose tobacco you'll see and what i like to do with a ribbon cut is uh, first make sure that i've gone through and gotten all the big chunks out of it because uh, sometimes maybe a chunk piece will will get into the tin or get into the get into your uh, pouch whatever it is um the uh, and I, I try to grab the the bigger pieces and put them towards the bottom of the bowl, so that way any of the little small pieces don't end up going up the draft hole at me. Uh, pack the ribbon cut medium, medium to medium tight. I mean you can get a you can get a pretty good long bowl out of it, and just be aware that the minute you light a ribbon cut blend, those long pieces in there, you're gonna get some expansion and some stuff puffing up on you. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I use the lighters that I do, my little DeJeep lighters, because they can you know, just put it right over the top of the bowl real quick and push it down. All right, so that's a ribbon cut. A shag cut is the same cut, just narrower. Long, skinny, shaggy-looking cuts of tobacco, just thinner. Uh, shag cuts can be more difficult to pack because... You run the risk of getting a tight knot in the middle of the bowl somewhere because those are real fine cut, uh, you know, real narrow cut ribbons. Um, one of the older, rarer uh, cuts that you'll see is a cube cut, and that's traditionally burly. It's a, a 1950s, 1960s kind of thing. It was probably developed for easy packing of tobacco, but they're little tiny cubes, and you would just kind of dip your pipe in there and push them in a little bit, and they would pack in nicely. Well, the problem is uh, they'd pack in really nicely because if you got the cubes all lined up, they'd build a little brick wall in there, and uh, you couldn't get air through it to save your life. Uh, also, it helped that it was burly, and uh, that you know that flavoring and that styling has just gone out of, uh, uh, gone out of uh, fashion, shall we say. 
The cut that I want to address that I don't think a lot of people talk about, and remember I'm the leading expert on my own opinion, and here it is. Uh, it's one that I call a cross cut. And it's not where you see a lot of ribbons. It's where you see a lot of tobacco leaves that were cut into little square pieces. Kind of cross cut. So you'll see a lot of little square thin pieces that looks like a whole bunch of ribbons cut up. Uh, with a cross-cut tobacco or a tobacco that doesn't that might have been a ribbon cut but doesn't have a lot of ribbons in there, I'm always careful that I don't get the bottom of the bowl pack too tight because all that tobacco down there can condense down relatively tight and become a bitter, nasty mess at the end of it. So if you don't have a lot of those ribbons, don't pack it too tight you want to make sure and allow enough air to go through there and uh, you don't want to pack the bottom of the bowl as tight as you would your uh, usual tobacco and the last one I want to talk about is uh, kind of a traditional Dutch Cavendish and that's where you see what looks like a, uh, a broken flake but it's really just clumpy strands um, you'll, you'll see that in particular in a lot of the, uh, well, it's called a Dutch style Cavendish because it's a lot of the traditional old Dutch style tobaccos, but you'll see it a lot in, uh, in a lot of the, uh, more mass market European aromatic tobaccos. And that one, you got to be careful again, because those clumps of, of, uh, ribbons, you can't really tear them apart. But you got to make sure that you get them into the bowl without getting any knots in the middle. So instead of packing them in thirds, I kind of like to pack those in smaller sections. So maybe one-fifth to one-sixth of the bowl at a time and just taking little pieces and pushing it in. Little pieces pushing it in and trying to avoid those big knots in the middle. So there's a little bit of uh, my opinion on packing loose tobaccos. Alright, in just a minute, Mark Tinsky. This is Internet Radio. Ack, I wish I had a genie who could make it easy to order pipes and tobaccos online. You don't need a genie, sir. Visit fournoggins.com. They stock all your favorite pipes and tobaccos, and every order gets fast personal attention. Orders are packed carefully and shipped quickly by priority mail. Fournoggins.com Fournoggins.com I can still see you, you know. A bit rusty, sir. Fournoggins.com There's nothing quite like working in my shop or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show, and joining us on the phone is uh, one of the uh, one of the more uh, reclusive legends of the American pipe making hobby, Mark Tinsky. Mark, welcome to the show. And how long have you been officially making pipes? I started making pipes in 1976 for Jack Weinberger, JHW Pipes in West Caldwell, New Jersey. I was pretty young at the time. And uh, we, had a, <laughs> we had a bunch of guys working there. 
uh, Kurt Rawler, who later became my partner, and Vic Steinhardt, who is Jack's nephew, who had a short run at pipe making at Briar Originals. Wow. So did you grow up in New Jersey? I did. I grew up in West Caldwell, went to high school there, and later went to Montclair State College and worked in the pipe shop part-time. I was doing that, and then eventually full-time. What, what did you go to college for? History. Okay, well, that works with pipe making. <laughs> yeah. No, I, at that time, it, I had no idea I wanted to be a pipe maker. It was just a cool job. You know, yeah. it worked, beat, worked uh, it was better than working at 7-Eleven. Uh, Kurt used to sweep floors in an apartment. And when he was able to get me this job, you know, we were all envious of Kurt. And uh, <laughs> I jumped at it. <laughs> So, had you smoked a pipe before you went to work there? Actually, yes, because Kurt had gotten the Kurt worked there first, and uh, he would bring us, you know, all his friends some seconds. So we were smoking Middleton Cherry Blend and things like that, you know, burning our mouths. <laughs> and um, <laughs> when I when I started working for Jack. One of the jobs was to carry all, in those days, you know, there's no internet, of course, so we trundled, you know, hundreds of pipes around to um, the retailers in the area, Harry's Smoke Shop, Pipe, Pipe and Bowl, and White Plains, and um, so when I started doing that, you know, I'd, I'd start sampling tobaccos, you know, they the retailer was always happy to let us try stuff. And eventually my uh, t- tobacco acumen grew a bit. <laughs> you, you went beyond cherry to chocolate vanilla. Yeah, something like it. Jack smoked a Nat Sherman custom blend that was all chocolate. It was a, a pure aromatic, and he smoked one pipe a day. He got up and lit it, and he filled it thousands of times and, and he put it to <laughs> put it to bed that was the last thing he did before he he uh, went to bed was put out his pipe he was a real pipe smoker he never I never saw him without a pipe in his mouth so how many different people did he have working for him at a time um there were four or five um there in a little tiny shop and they were all you know, 19 to 22, and it was a lot of fun. You know, we had a great time. Jack kind of became the bookkeeper at that point, and the salesman and left the production to Kurt, and he kind of supervised, you know, two or three other people. Let, let you young whippersnappers do all the hard work while he was doing the, well, I hate paperwork, so that's hard, too. <laughs> yeah, we tried to keep him out of the shop as much as possible. <laughs> he just caused trouble. <laughs> there was a, a machine there, an upright, that you put the stems in to cut the tenons. We didn't have legs back then. And if you didn't get the stem real straight, it would cut kind of a cockeyed tenon. And I remember we used to, you know, you'd take and look at it and go, oh, this is no good. And you'd toss it. And we used to 
lot of times they wound up on the floor, and Jack would come after work and pick up all the stems and put them back in the bins. You'd assume they were good and use them, and then you'd have a pipe with a cockeyed stem on it. So <laughs> one time we took the stems and we super glued them to the floor. The bad ones to pick them up. <laughs> <laughs> and were you guys getting paid by the hour to do all this goofing around, or was it by piecework? No, we were getting paid by the hour. Because <laughs> there was a lot of goofing around. <laughs> all right. So, it, was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's go forward. Uh, what do you do next after uh, after working for Jack? Well, um, while I was... Working for Jack, um, I finished college and Kurt finished. We were bicycle tours, and we worked so that we could take the summers off and go biking, uh, pedal biking. Yeah. And for a number of summers, we went to Canada and to Nova Scotia, to Gaspé. And um, earlier, we had ridden our bikes from New Jersey to Alaska. Whoa. Before working for Jack. And we decided we were going to go around the world on our bikes. And so we worked for a couple summers and saved money. And when we were leaving, Jack said, don't come back. He's getting tired of us coming and going. <laughs> and we said, okay. <laughs> so we, off we went, and uh, we got as far as Turkey, and we were heading through Iran, and when the Iranians revolution blew up and they told us we couldn't get through there uh, what good we did go as it turns out we could have been the first hostages I guess <laughs> but we came home and we still had a few thousand bucks left in our pockets and um, Jack tried to get Kurt to come back <laughs> he had enough of me I guess <laughs> but we didn't go and we worked for that guy Vic Steinhardt I was telling you about for a while um who had started Briar Original, but had gotten a full-time job. And uh, he paid us in Briar. And after a few months of that, we decided to start our own company. And we moved out to Frenchtown, New Jersey, and lived on a farm and had a tool shed for a shop. And uh, after about nine months, you know, scavenging lumber for building tables and things like that. We were able to start producing pipes. And fortunately for us, we had been carrying Jack's pipes around for so many years that we knew where to go. So we went to, you know, the shops in New Jersey and New York, where at least the owners kind of knew us, and started selling pipes. Um, some of the earliest pipes retailed for 25 bucks. And was that the uh, beginning of the American pipe make uh, the American pipe company? Yes, nineteen seventy-eight. All right, and I want to back up just a little bit because on your uh, bicycle trip to uh, to become hostages in Iran, uh, there's water in the way. What'd you do? Bicycle on the boat all the way over? <laughs> no, we no on the plane to to Gatwick. Oh, okay. We we did a big tour of Europe. We didn't just go straight. We went all over the place and uh, eventually wound up in Turkey. 
Okay. By way of Greek, Switzerland, all those places. All right, so let's back up. We'll, we'll go forward again to the to to the birth of the uh, American pipes, and that was you and Kurt working side by side making them. Yes. And how long? I mean, how did that? Did one of you make more, and the other one did the sales, or did you divvy it up equally? You know, we were best friends from elementary school, and we didn't really keep track. Um, at that point, Kurt's strong. Kurt was a better pipe maker for sure. I mean, he'd been doing it for a lot longer, and, and he was very talented. Um, he he did a lot of the shop stuff, fixing the machines, things like that. And um, I guess I was more of a gabber than he was, so I did a lot of the sales, but. We both, you know, we produced pretty equally, I'd say. Um, later, I got married, so he took some of the further, you know, like the car, overnight car trips, and, you know, he'd go out on the road for a week. And um, so we, it was pretty equal, I guess, but nobody was really keeping track. When he was gone, did you super glue anything to the floor? No, no, no. Kurt was fine. He was he was a pleasure to work with. Uh, in 1990, he left. He he'd been making pipes for about 15, 18 years, and he just wanted to do something different, you know. And um, he started doing carpentry and making kayak paddles and you know, kind of interesting stuff and. I kept going, you know, an amicable parting. He just wanted to do something different. You know, we were only 35 years old by then. Yeah, so at, at uh, that point, were you guys going to trade shows and doing the, the traditional wholesale method? Yes. We went to RTDA for a couple of years, and we had a booth behind the women's bathroom. <laughs> and uh, I still have nightmares about that, those shows. <laughs> They were horrible. <laughs> yeah, we were not part of the retail tobacco establishment. You know, you have to remember there weren't, there were no other artisan pipe makers then. Um, from my, you know, generation, you know, I can look as contemporaries as Elliot Knockwalter, Damn. who started Briar Workshop. Uh, Jim Cook worked for him. Uh, who's that guy out in? Brad, Brad uh, Pullman worked for him. Yeah, yep, Brad Pullman. Um, and Tim West, I think he got started around then, and Randy Wiley. Um, but we went into business first, I think. I, Elliot might be right around the same time. Um, so... You know, you went to a retail tobacco show, Savinelli, Dunhill, all the big names had these sweets, and, you know, we were just also rants, you know. We, we were the mammals in the time of dinosaurs. <laughs> Was it two, we two, guy, two guys with a card table and a whole bunch of pipes up on top, and uh, you were eating a bologna sandwich? Yeah, it's yeah, peanut butter. Oh. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. You know, and sleeping in the car. Uh, instead of hotels, and uh, you know, I'm not complaining. It was it was a, 
a great time, but uh, it wasn't, you know, there were no regional shows like now where you could plop your stuff down and people were happy to see you. Um, you know, the other, the Lane representatives and Cadogan representatives, you know, you were sat there waiting and they showed up, they went first. You know, you just kept sitting there until somebody could see you, you know. Um <laughs> But, hey, I'm still around. Most of those guys aren't. That's a perfect spot to take a break. We'll pause right here. and we come back, we'll find out uh, what happened to you because obviously you're still here. So uh, stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell & Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell & Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenay's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell & Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show eating peanut butter and jellies with Mark Tinsky. Um, all right, Mark, you're on your own. It's, what is it, 1990 now? And how do you get to Montana, of, of all places? Well, we, Kurt and I lived in Pennsylvania in the Poconos um, because it was very, it was a cheap place to live and it was central to New York, Washington, Boston, um, where we did most of our business. Um, and that that stayed in effect for the next six years. I mean, I had to take pipes with me wherever I went. Um, my best customer at the time was John B. Hayes Tobacconist, and that made things a little easier because he was only four hours away. Yeah. And he started sucking up most of our pipes. Uh, and that the, the other shop was Smoker's Haven in Columbus, which Kurt handled. But right around when Kurt left, they, I think they sold it, and their business changed, and they weren't as important to us anymore. Um, so for the next six years, um, I just took pipes out on my own, just uh, ran a regular sales route. And then in 90, around 90, 91, 92, there was a recession. And I don't know what it was, why it was so bad for pipes, but new pipes just stopped selling. It was, it was amazing and scary. And I went into pipe repair because that was a way to keep bread on the table and I trained my wife to do it. And we were doing quite a big pipe repair business because fortunately people were still 
breaking them, but they weren't buying new ones. <laughs> and, and during and that, this is when they started with the anti-smoking stuff. You yeah. couldn't smoke in the office anymore. Um, and there was a, most of our customers were like 55 years old and 60 years old. And during this time, a, a lot of them must have retired. And with the anti-smoking pressure, they didn't need as many pipes. Who knows what happened? But there was a turnover. And uh, by the time things got rolling again, it was with a much younger crowd of, of men. Um, and then the other big change was the Internet. Um, and I started on Alternate Smokers Pipes, one of the early, the first pipe news group, sometime in 95, I guess. Wow. And <laughs> that was a, and Greg Pease was on it, Paul Bonacristi. Uh We had a great time. You know, it was a really good forum, and some of the information on there is just priceless. Um, there was a lot of really good blow-up arguments on there, too. Well, that was before the arguments, oh, okay. you know, before some of the, what do you call those guys uh, who come and just want to make trouble? <laughs> Me? You know, for a while, it was a pure, <laughs> it was a pure bite news group. Trolls, I guess. And uh, it sort of inspired me to, to put a pipe, pipe shop online. And my brother, who was a database designer, decided to use me as a uh, test case for a new business of building websites. <laughs> and so I think I had the first pipe, first commercial pipe website online in 1996. Wow. And that, yeah, that changed, that was the beginning of a big change that let me come to Montana. Um, so by, and I was like the only one there, even though it was a small group then, it was great being, you know, having a, a corner on it, even a small market, and guys were getting excited about pipes, and um, I remember doing a lot of special commissions then and things like that, and also the regional pipe shows started, PCI was going, um, and a lot, there were, again, more American pipe makers, um, Mike Butera was very influential. And he got me going in the mid '80s. My friend Paul Bonacquisti yeah. got going. John Eels. You know, there was just the, the artisan market was was starting to grow. Um, if you think about it, the only way you could learn to make pipes was with by somebody else. Somebody had to pretty much teach you. Um, my first employer, Jack Weinberger. He used to sit at Mac, camp himself at Max Schulte's shop and watch how Max made pipes. Yeah. Um, Max learned by working in one of the, the factories that were in uh, East Jersey. There were quite a number in the 40s and 50s and 60s, and they'd only teach one guy how to do everything. And these guys would retire and open up their own shops, and they'd be the... Uh, Pipe maker in the window, Jelling, Schoenlieber, um, Ehrlich up in Boston. 
So very few people knew how to do the whole process. And so it took a long time for this to filter down, you know, for for the Jack Weinbergers to go teach these guys out and, you know, maybe learn how to do it. And the more of them there were, you know, they taught other people. And I was, you know, one of that one of that early generation, as Jim Cook was, and Elliot, and guys like that. So by the time the mid-'80s come, it had spread even further, and you were getting more pipe makers out there. And now there's billions of them because of YouTube, you know. You don't need somebody to teach you. You know, in, o- in over 200-plus shows, you're the first person that has actually pointed out that it wasn't until the 70s or 80s that you actually had somebody that knew the, you know, that an individual could learn the entire process of pipe making because before that it was pretty much the factory system. Yeah, and, and they only taught one guy how to do it. Everybody, you know, somebody knew how to drill, somebody knew how to phrase bowls, somebody knew how to fit stems, but nobody knew how to do it all. So really what Jack was doing by teaching you everything was he was saving having five or six people there and just paying you. Yes, yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, we weren't a factory. Everybody made their own pipes. Yeah. You know, it just kind of worked out that way. Yeah. Um, I, don't know. I don't know if it was his idea of it. <laughs> Little did he know he was making his competition, you know, because me and Kurt and Dick went out on our own. Yeah, so so you picked Montana as a place to go because you wanted to get as far away from your customers because the internet now made it easy. Well, at some point, I was able to give up, um, not give up retailing, but give up the sales route and say, "Well, if you want something, you got to call me." Except for John Hayes, of course. And then in two thousand and one, I came out. I one of the hobbies I picked up was fly fishing. Yep. I didn't have time to bicycle anymore. That went that went down the tubes when I went into business for myself. But I was doing a lot of fly fishing in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and New York. And one of my customers invited me to come to Montana with him. I said, sure. Off we went. And I said, boy, this is great. We went. I went back the next year in 2002 and really didn't come home. <laughs> I turned around, packed up the shop, and went to Montana. But, you know, I, as long as I have a, an internet connection and a post office, I can live anywhere. And that was a, a huge change. You know, I wasn't tied to retailers. And by that time, my business was good enough, you know, just dealing directly with customers. I didn't need the retailers anymore. And uh, so I still have them. They're very valuable. You know, I, I, I don't turn any retailers down, but, you know, direct sales is, uh, you know, is, is more profitable and easy and more rewarding. You know, sometimes you could, when you sold a great pipe to a retailer, you never knew what happened to it. You know, yeah. you, you got no personal satisfaction from it. But when I send a pipe out to a customer now, I hear back from it. He'll tell me, call me a year later. He's, oh, this is still smoking great my favorite pipe you know it's, it's so much more satisfying dealing you know directly with your customers um, and at this point that's what i like doing the best you know i don't have to build a business it's just 
you know, dealing with people you enjoy. Uh, talking yeah. specifically about pipe making, is there a part of the pipe making process that you like the most? Uh, I guess shaping. I guess when you have the pipe drilled and, and the stem in it and it's just you on the wheel, you know, I, I think I still would prefer shaping over everything. Cause that's, that's where it really all happens. Um, you can machine a pipe to a certain extent, but, you know, it's really in your hands where the pipe, you know, develops. So I, I think I like doing that the best. Are there shapes that you prefer to make over others or shapes that you like making more? I prefer traditional shapes um, and just making them a little unique. Um you know, I'm still the generation that, you know, prize, um, you know, a perfectly made pipe. And um, I, can't, I can't seem to get through that to some of the, you know, the more freeform shapes. Um, so I, I like traditional with a little flair to them. Um, and the... I think some of the... Yeah. Uh, the website is amsmoke.com, and there is just a ton of pipe pictures up and different finishes and styles. And uh, I mean, I guess it's a uh, you know forty some odd years of experience, and you've got uh, quite a catalog. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, it's uh, it's all. <laughs> It's all from that first two years on the internet, so it's not very, uh, <laughs> not very sophisticated. <laughs> so I, I stopped at HTML two. You know, I never even heard of Java. So. <laughs> there's there's this new thing called color now too. Oh my god! I know. Oh, one of these days, I'll get somebody to redo it. <laughs> that's that's the original. You know. I don't know. I'm, I'm not much of a marketer. I never have been. I, I like making pipes, not selling them so much. So look at it. Look at it this way: you're you're an old school style pipe maker, and you've got an old school style website that is in full color with clickable things on it that you can punch in. You don't yeah, have to... yeah, it works. Yeah, it works. <laughs> and occasionally your fingers show up in the picture, but other than that, that's okay. Sometimes the pipe doesn't balance right, you know, on the on this little pedestal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my fingers show up. My brother yells at me for that. <laughs> um, is there a, a story about you meeting somebody else while you were fly fishing that ended up becoming a pipe maker? Yes, Rad Davis, <laughs> uh, my good friend. Rad, <laughs> Rad was was an early charity case. That's what I used to call some of the guys. <laughs> Uh, who, I, in, in my opinion, like he couldn't afford something or, you know, he, he was a fishing guide in Montana and uh, he sent me some pipe repairs and he offered to swap me some flies for it. So I said, sure, you know. And he sent me his western, this is when I lived in Pennsylvania, and he sent me his western flies, which were totally useless in Pennsylvania. And, uh, 
when I came out here, I guess somehow he heard me, he looked me up, and he said he had some more pipe repairs. I, I said, sure, I'll, I'll do them for some flies, you know. <laughs> That's what I mean. I didn't really need them, but he sounded like a nice guy. And um, eventually he dropped them off, and he hung out in the shop, and we smoked some pipes, and he took me fishing. And uh, we found we liked each other. And I taught a few people over the years to make pipes. And Paul Bonacquisti was another one. And I really got to like the person. You know, they've got to be a friend because you spend so much time together. Who wants to spend time with somebody, you know, you don't know or like that much <laughs> or don't have that much in common. <laughs> but Rad would just come over and hang out in the shop, and I made him some pipe kits, and he started shaping. He was pretty talented, and we'd go fishing, and... His wife was back in Alabama, and I was single. So, you know, we just palled around. You know, we had the same interests, and um, he learned to make pipes in my shop. And eventually he moved back to Alabama. He gave up guiding and started making pipes and became really good at it. <laughs> I think he's great. And uh, he recently retired, but he, fortunately for me, he still does my sandblast, and uh, he does a great job. And yeah, he's a real success story. And I and I will concur that uh, he's he's a great guy to hang out with, and just you know, we we miss seeing him at the pipe shows, though. Yeah, he's he's just he's got a great sense of humor. He's just so funny and so smart. What? I, I talk to him almost every week. And, uh, yeah, probably, probably mostly about fishing, though. No, it's more about, he, he stays up on the pipe world. I mean, he, he, uh, reads the forums more than I do. I guess he's got more time and tell me about this pipe maker or that pipe maker and, you know, laugh about it or, or, uh, yeah, he'll see one that's really good and he'll praise him and I'll check him out. And, uh. So, you know, we're just old chums, <laughs> a bunch of old ladies. Uh, uh, um, old lady, before we uh, finish this up, where do your pipes start out price-wise? Um, about 175 for a rustic or a smaller smooth. And they generally go, you know, most of the pipes fall between 175 and 300 And you know, there's a few that are more expensive, that are bigger, or better grains, but, you know, mid 200s is the average price, I'd say. And now we will uh, wrap this up with the Fast Five final questions. There's no right answer, no wrong answer, just whatever comes to your mind. Are you ready? Yep. What is your favorite pipe? I have a Becker. Uh, let me see, it's right here. <laughs> a Becker billiard with a pretty close to perfect straight grain. Uh, I probably had like, uh, I can't, it's got it, so it's a little dirty, but I think he used hearts or something like that. But that's, and a, a Jack Howell pipe that he gave me when he came to visit a, a big bent billiard, damn blast. Uh, I could go off on why. <laughs> 
pipes all taste different. Yep. I don't know what it is. They, they just taste different, and these two taste superb with the tobacco I'm smoking. And that's a perfect segue into what is your favorite tobacco? Well, the only tobacco I really smoke is Baron Navy Flakes. I've smoked it probably 25 years or so, and I like their age. I have a collection of aged tin, which I break out every about twice a year, and just the regular uh, tins that are not old, that smokes great too. That's what mostly I smoke. Occasionally, uh, Hamburger Veermeister, but, you know, 95% of the time it's Navy Flake. You got a long way from Middleton's Cherry, so that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, not that far. It's only a few years. Oh, okay. Uh, Five or ten years before I found it. What is your favorite drink? Mm, apple cider. Hard or soft? Soft. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> uh, when it's when it's time when it's time to relax, do you prefer a book, a movie, or music? And the final question, and this is going to be the hardest one for you, is there a particularly favorite pipe-smoking-related memory that we haven't talked about? Oh, there's so many, so many. But I would say in the uh, early years, we were still working for Jack, still smoking Middleton's Cherry Blend. We made ourselves uh, camping pipes. And they were little straight apples with silver bands on them, very light because we were backpacking then. And sitting around the campfire at night, Kurt called them Mo Yukon. (laughs) I don't know why, but smoking our Mo Yukon pipes with uh, Middleton's cherry blend, lighting them with, you know, embers, you know, pine embers from the fire. Ah, that sounds like fun and... uh... Alright, uh, check out Mark's website, amsmoke.com. Uh, it's uh, October now, so uh, spring, summer, and fall are over, and welcome to nine months of winter in Montana. Uh, and uh, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, it's been a pleasure. We'll be back in just a minute. It's Saturday morning at the crack of dawn. The cool chill of night still clings to the air as the sun slowly rises over the misty surface of the lake. You've waited all week for just this moment. You know that today is going to be epic. Everything is here to ensure perfection, from the nice full cooler packed with your favorite suds to the other empty one, waiting to be filled with piles of freshly caught fish. Reaching into your pocket, you pull out your trusty briar and fill it with your favorite tobacco, aptly named Great Outdoors. It is the perfect smoke for moments like these. A strike, a flash, and your tobacco is lit. As the delicious mixture ignites and swirls over your tongue and the deep, rich burleys with a hint of sweet Virginia dance in your mouth, you smile, casting your first line into the water. The slowly widening ripples begin to stir 
as you feel the first bite of the day tug at your line. Now you know it truly is going to be a good day and a perfect time to enjoy the simple yet unmatchable pleasures of the great outdoors. Great Outdoors is another fine quality pipe tobacco manufactured by Sutliff, America's oldest tobacco company, and is available at fine tobacconists everywhere. Enjoy your perfect day by purchasing a tin today. There's nothing quite like fishing at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back. You know, I love learning stuff and getting new perspectives. And, uh, yeah, every time, every time on the show, I tend to I pick up something different. Hopefully we'll have Mark on again. I'd love to hear more about some of those older, uh, some of the pipe makers of the 70s and 80s. Uh, in the meantime, check out his website. And if you're going up to Montana, uh, give him a, you know, just shout his name out out loud. They'll hear you. All right, for music, Neil Kay wrote in uh, last week, um, great show, as are most of them. I just wanted to mention a possible song that refers to a sailor who smokes a briar pipe, Land Ho by the Doors. I And, and I must admit, I am not a, um, I'm not a big fan of the Doors, not a big fan of Jim Morrison, and uh, but I gave the song a listen. I like it. I'm still not a big fan of The Doors, but uh, you guys tell me what you think. This is Land Ho by The Doors. Stand at mass 
Well, the sailor had a briar pipe. I'm pretty sure Jim Morrison had a uh, slightly different kind of pipe. Anyway, what'd you guys think? You've got some mail. First off, I want to thank Neil Kay for suggesting the song. If you've got a song that you'd like to suggest, just email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com, or post it on the radio show page, pipesmagazine.com slash uh, radio talk show or whatever those things are up there, just like Neil did. All right, uh, on Stitcher, we got a review about 20-some-odd days ago from Johnny D. Great show with a excellent host. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he says, uh, this show contains several entertaining segments and keeps you up to date on all the current affairs in and around the pipe community. Absolutely perfect. That's what uh, I hope to do. Uh, thank you, Johnny D. If you're on Stitcher, leave us a uh, rating and a uh, review over there. We would appreciate it. If you're on iTunes, do the same thing while you're there. All those ratings help the help other people find the Pipes Magazine radio show. And going back to last week, Dino said... I find your opening question to guests describing how they got into pipes to be one of the highlights of the show. It always seems to lead to that aha moment when a more seasoned member of our community helps spark the transition from dabbler to pipe person. Uh, Robert's story is similarly indicative of that warm brotherhood and sisterhood of our unique community. Excellent show tonight. Thanks, Dino. So I thought about that for a little bit, and I did realize that um, the ones that surprised me are the guys that, you know, had somebody from the start that came up to them and put them into the right pipe and the right kind of tobacco for them right away, and they kind of found their spot. But, yeah, it is a, uh, it's, it's a very similar story how a lot of us survived the burning our face off and then found somebody that would uh, teach us. Uh, Casey Ghost says... Enjoyed the discussion of Dunhills very much. Uh, I don't know what it is they've got, but they've got it. Yeah, they've got it. Um, Robert's discussion of prices when he entered the smoking arena, and now have they really changed? Uh, the Excalibur number one was just a joy to smoke when they were a dollar eighty. Not so much now. Yeah, not so much a dollar eighty anymore. All right, uh, comments and questions, again, post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on uh, PipesMagazine.com. I appreciate them all. Uh, one reminder, coming up April, uh, April, November 5th, 6th, 7th, Palace Station, Las Vegas, Nevada, the West Coast Pipe Show. Come on out. I'll be there. I'll have some uh, tobacco to sell, and uh, we'll just have a good old time hanging out, smoking and talking and might be some uh, drinking, and it's right in a casino, so there might be a little bit of gambling there. All right, rant time, coming up next. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history... Educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. 
And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes. I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at SmokingPipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. Cowboy. Cowboy. Words like great, the best, or classic are commonly used to describe pipes and pipe tobaccos by those of us in this hobby. Well, in order for something to be great, shouldn't there be some measurable uh, data against all the others out there for it to be great? Or for it to be the best, wouldn't it be the best-selling ever? Or if it's a classic, does that indicate that it's going to be around forever or whatever? Anyway, terms like that, great, the best, or classic, when you're using that to describe a tobacco, what you're actually saying is, this is one of my favorites. I think I will like this one for a long time. Or, this is my favorite. This is my personal choice. Well, why don't you say that instead of telling people that, well, this is great and you need to try this. Well, if they try it and they don't like it, then what happens? How do they feel? It's not great to them. Well, maybe you lied to them. No, maybe they're defective. No, maybe what it really is, is it works for you. It's your favorite. It's your number one. It's your all-time classic. And it's not going to be that for everybody else. So, when you're using the phrase, great, best, classic, whatever, remember... It's your opinion of it. It's not backed up in fact and therefore should be stated as my opinion, which you are the leading expert of. This is what I like the most. All right, there you go. Just, you know, post correctly in the forums or use terms like that correctly, please, because otherwise, hey, the best selling tobaccos in the world are ones that most of us really don't like. But. <laughs> We're listening to a, a podcast. Anyway. All right. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Mark for uh, joining me and for the wonderful stories. Uh, next couple of weeks, going to have some fun shows. So I will say until next time. Who cares about the clouds 
when we're together Just sing a song and think about sunny weather Everything that guy just says bullshit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>